Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's Wednesday night, the 12th of February, 1902, and in the gallery at Her Majesty's Theatre in Sydney, 14-year-old Graham McIntyre is selling fruit to the audience, thrilling to the spectacle of Ben-Hur. The lad, who's been in the workforce since the previous July when he was old enough to leave school, started in this job last Saturday, on opening night. He's following in the footsteps of his older sister Lillian, about 19 years old, and his older brother Gordon, about 17, who've both worked at Her Majesty's for some time now. The McIntyre siblings live with their mother Louisa and their father Samuel in a house in Reservoir Street, Surrey Hills, which is considered one of Sydney's worst slums. After work at Ben-Hur that night, Graham McIntyre goes home and starts to feel sick. He can't go to work the next day, or the day after that. On Saturday the 15th of February, suffering severe bubonic plague symptoms, he's taken to the coast hospital. That late afternoon, as the Ben-Hur matinee is ending, two officials from the Board of Health make a surprise visit to Her Majesty's. They ask to see Mr Henry Vincent, the show's manager and director. They hand him the Board of Health's blue paper, which declares that Her Majesty's Theatre is a potential place of bubonic plague infection and has to close. The performance of Ben-Hur that's underway is allowed to finish, and the audience, actors, horses and the real camel are all free to go. But until further notice, Her Majesty's Theatre is closed for fumigation and inspection and the biggest show Australia's ever seen can't go on. I'm Michael Adams and this is the second part of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Plague Returns. During the 1902 outbreak of bubonic plague in Sydney, the laying low of this victim would garner more attention and sympathy from politicians, newspaper editors and Sydney-siders than any other. We're talking about Ben-Hur, not young Graham McIntyre. J.C. Williamson, who was in Melbourne at the time, got telegrams from all over Australia. 
people saying how sorry they were that his pride and joy Ben-Hur after just a week was on hold indefinitely. As for the infected boy, separated from his family, isolated in the coast hospital as he suffered fever chills, head and body aches, vomiting diarrhea, bleeding and the swelling and blackening of his body, well, he was marginalised and all but blamed in the press. Truth Newspaper's headline put it this way, A fruit boy, the cause of the trouble. That's what the article said too. True supporter had turned up to the theatre at 7 on Saturday night to see the frustrated crowds. After a bit of investigation, he learned, quote, that a boy who used to sell fruit in the gallery was the sole cause of all the trouble. The poor lad, who had been, quote, turning an honest bob selling apple, orange and lemonade, had unfortunately taken it into his head to contract the plague. True's tone was often glib, but this was just callous. Ben-Hur's manager, Mr. Vincent, wasn't happy. He said the Board of Health had overreacted, and he also did his best to distance the show from the suffering kid. He told Truth, quote, We are not quarantined, but as you see, we are in the hands of the police. Nobody connected with the theatre is ill. None of the actors, stagehands, or clerks or attendants. Yet, as you see, we are obliged to close. In his view, Graham McIntyre wasn't connected with the theatre. Mr. Vincent complained that if that night's performance had been allowed to go ahead, they could have simply fumigated all Sunday and then kept the theatre closed on Monday if necessary. In other words, he would rather have put 1,200 audience members and 500 cast and crew into the theatre despite not knowing whether it was the source of infection. Quote, As it is, we have to break faith with the public and suffer a big loss through no fault of anyone employed by Mr. Williamson. Still hammering this point, Mr. Vincent said no one, not one person, had been absent through illness for the past six weeks of pre-production and rehearsal and performance. Given that 500 people were employed on the show, it's hard to believe no one had even a spot of tummy trouble that whole time. Anyway, the Daily Telegraph seemed to take his word for it and dutifully reported that Graham McIntyre had, quote, not been at the theatre since Wednesday night, was not in their employ, but was engaged by the man who has the right of selling the fruit in the theatre. Graham's mother, Louisa, would deny her son had worked for a fruit seller. She said he, like his siblings, was employed by Her Majesty's Theatre. She said he'd started there on the Saturday, worked Monday and Tuesday nights, and the matinee and evening performance on the Wednesday before he got sick. But the phrasing of a report in the Australian Star newspaper seemed at pains to reassure readers that the Ben-Hur audience hadn't been exposed to the boy for very long at all. It claimed he was, quote, only a few hours at the theatre and was not taken ill there, but at his home in Surrey Hills. Of course, person-to-person -person transmission wasn't a concern, and where he was taken ill was beside the point. As the Board of Health's action had shown, they clearly believed there was a good chance he'd been bitten by a plague flea at Her Majesty's but newspapers would say that Graham McIntyre could have gotten the plague at any one of four or five places. On Sunday night, a man called John Gannon from the Paddington infected area died at the coast hospital. Dr Tidswell now had to answer criticisms about supposed laxity. Some of these criticisms were born of ignorance, but others had good foundation. Why weren't contacts being sent to the coast hospital like contacts had been sent to the quarantine station in 1900? The doctor explained, again, that there was no evidence of person-to-person -person transmission. So contacts were just being kept under medical surveillance, ordered to report to a doctor once a day in case of symptoms. 
why wasn't there a hard lockdown of quarantined areas? The doctor explained that the Board of Health was allowing people in and out of hotspots and children to go to school because this didn't interfere with the cleansing operations and destruction of buildings that were deemed a menace to health. What was the Board of Health doing about sending out rat catchers? Here, Dr Tidswell said it wasn't the government's responsibility to supply rat catchers to councils. Board of Health rat catchers were only sent to hotspots under special supervision. Given the urgency of this situation, that sounded like a ridiculous protocol to keep following. But Dr Tidswell didn't think the situation was that urgent. He told reporters that while other cases of plague would occur, it was not probable that anything like an epidemic would break out and there was no occasion for public alarm. The Daily Telegraph, which at this time was the most consistent critic of official inaction, said on the 17th of February it was clear the city was plague-stricken as more and more cases were discovered with no clear connection between them. Quote, The brief history of the present epidemic is one of incapacity, piecemeal action and indecision. The Board of Health lacks the power and the means to deal efficiently with an emergency matter which must be regarded as of national proportions and in connection with which very heavy expenditure will again be necessary. While the 1900 response had been somewhat chaotic, it had succeeded in practically clearing the city of rats. But, the Daily Telegraph said, quote, As soon as the virulence of the disease abated, state and municipal activities seemed to have relaxed. Since its disappearance, the special efforts made to purify the city and safeguard the people against plague by continued destruction of rats and rigid administration in regard to cleanliness have been abandoned. It was pretty hard to argue with that. On the Saturday night and through Sunday, Her Majesty's Theatre was fumigated and inspected. But while reporters were present to see slum housing torn to pieces, the cleansing work carried out in the theatre wasn't described by the press. Readers didn't get a chance to learn whether dead and dying rats were found on the premises, or whether sanitation and maintenance was adequate. Perhaps no vermin were found and everything was shipshape. But how to explain the lack of press attention? For one, Her Majesty's was private property rather than a suburban area, so Mr Vincent or the building's owners might have simply refused reporters any access. If a journalist did get inside, they might have been muzzled by editors in fear of being sued. During the reporting of the Reddy's Hill inspection, fumigation and demolition, an evening news journalist had told readers that under the harsh libel laws the state government had refused to amend recently, he was unable to provide the full and appalling details. Reading between the lines, this likely meant that while he could offer general descriptions of filth and neglect, if he actually named slumlords or identified specific properties, he risked being sued. The same legal concerns would have applied in the case of Her Majesty's Theatre. On Monday the 17th of February, the same day as the Daily Telegraph's seething editorial, the Premier and Dr Tidswell were under pressure to give Her Majesty's Theatre a clean bill of health so that Ben-Hur could resume immediately. This pressure, of course, came from J.C. Williamson and Mr Vincent. And on this same day, another man came down with the plague. Here's how the Sydney Morning Herald reported him. Quote, Albert Twist, aged 35, living in Camperdown. He was removed to the coast hospital. The evening news, meanwhile, said he was, quote, employed in the heart of the city. What was strange was that the papers didn't report where he worked. As a comparative example, just over a week earlier, when there had been three cases in the city, it was widely reported that the Greek man, George Wachina, 
had a fish shop on George Street West. And as he was just two doors from where victim Thomas Cuddy worked in a hotel, it seemed obvious that these two cases were related. So where did Albert Twist work? The official medical register of plague victims maintained by the Board of Health at the time listed him as a scene shifter at Her Majesty's Theatre. Why wasn't this reported? I don't know, but it does seem clear newspapers had this information. If it had been omitted in one paper, you might have thought it was just an oversight. But the fact that it didn't find its way into any papers suggests there was some sort of suppression at work. Why keep it from the public? A second case at the theatre surely would have lessened any argument for an early reopening of Ben-Hur. It also made it seem less likely that the boy Graham McIntyre had been infected at his home or elsewhere. The next day, there were two more cases. Edith Weir, described in the papers as a married woman at Leichhardt, would later be listed in the Her Majesty's Theatre cluster, indicating the Board of Health knew she'd been in the vicinity when she was bitten. The other case... Edward Hilda was reported as working as a cellar man at the George Hotel at the corner of Pitt and Market Streets, and these were premises that adjoined Her Majesty's. Despite these developments, there was still pressure to resume Ben-Hur. The Premier, Mr C, pushed back by revealing he'd received a telegram asking that he intervene and immediately order the reopening of Her Majesty's Theatre. The Premier was prudent enough not to say who this message was from, but as an indication of what he'd been asked to do, he was paraphrased by the Sydney Morning Herald as saying, quote, he could not ignore the advice of the Public Health Board. He would not do so if he could. Her Majesty's Theatre would remain closed until the Board of Health gave it the all clear. Regional newspapers raised amused eyebrows at the city folk's priorities. Sydney siders seemed to side in their sympathies with J.C. Williamson and Mr. Vincent more than the Board of Health who was trying to keep the city safe. And those poor people at the Coast Hospital, well, they weren't the only ones suffering. A Sydney ladies' letter in the Wellington Times at Dubbo said the closure of Her Majesty's had contributed to society people all but dying of ennui. Quote, With nothing going on worth speaking of in the social world either, it was quite a trial to them to kill time for a whole week of evenings with but the mere companionship of one another. Poor things, they are to be pitied. At 7am on Wednesday the 19th of February, young Graham McIntyre died at the Coast Hospital. He was the seventh fatality so far from 21 cases. The 1 in 3 ratio of 1900 was being repeated. Edith Weir and Edward Hilda of the Her Majesty's Theatre Cluster would die in the next 24 hours too. Nevertheless, Dr Tidswell reassured the public there was no fear of a alarming outbreak and that the city and suburban councils were now vigorously at work. The City Council's Health Committee said the area bordered by Market Street, Castlereagh Street, Pitt Street and the Imperial Arcade should be regarded as infected. In another example of a newspaper apparently afraid of being sued should they name names, Maitland's Daily Mercury reported this of a Sydney councillor during that committee meeting. Quote, Alderman Wayne referred to another place of entertainment where rats had died on Saturday night and had been kicked about under the feet of the audience. Saturday night was the night Ben-Hur had been closed. Some of the 1,200 or so disappointed ticket holders were reported to have gone to the handful of other shows then playing in Sydney's theatre district. 
It made sense. They'd gotten themselves gussied up and they'd gotten themselves all the way into the city. Might as well make a night of it, even if the place of entertainment came with dead and dying rats underfoot. While Dr. Tidswell appeared to have struggled with the administrative, political and media side of his role as acting boss of the Board of Health, his contribution to plague science was undoubted. He and Dr. Ashburton Thompson's work did much to establish that rat fleas were the vectors of bubonic plague infection. Even so, the Sydney Morning Herald only went so far now as to say that while it was not scientifically proved to be true, it is the accepted and working theory. The paper added, whether the rat flea is the actual conveyor of disease, most of those who accept the rat theory do not say. Possibly it is. The paper said that bites from rat fleas might be the cause, but quote, infection may spread from the rat in some other way. While the Sydney Morning Herald did recommend rat extermination, this sort of equivocal reporting might also have given ammunition to citizens who reckoned killing rodents wasn't really necessary because, well, who really knew how bubonic plague spread anyway? But the Daily Telegraph at least quoted Alderman Fitzgerald of the Sydney City Council who said unequivocally that medical authorities had once and for all decided that rat fleas were the cause. So various councils and bodies needed to set aside their squabbling for a concerted rat crusade. There was no point killing rats here and there, now and then, because this only drove them from one place to another. All the rats had to die at once. This argument was now three months old. J.C. Williamson arrived in Sydney from Melbourne saying he was hopeful Ben-Hur would resume on Saturday night. By now, that whole city block was being fumigated. Councils were inundated with requests for free rat poison and disinfectant. Yet the all-in, all-at-once rat crusade still wasn't on the cards. Nor were officials doing everything they could to stop the spread of the plague. Back in 1900, ground zero had been Sussex Street, where one-time infamous maritime cannibal turned respectable Sydney sailmaker Captain Thomas Dudley had been bitten and become the first city resident to die of bubonic plague. Now rats were back on Sussex Street, and they were dying of the disease. The Evening News interviewed a merchant who said the government wasn't controlling rats on the government-owned wharves. At night, he said, quote, There are hundreds of rats gambling about on goods and on bags of produce. So long as these breeding grounds are left unmolested, the city must be infested with a surplus of wharf rats. He said the mayor was loath to interfere on the wharves where he didn't have jurisdiction, so it was up to the state government to set the example for the councils and for citizens by tending to its own rat-infested backyard. This interview appeared on the same day and on the same page as the Premier, Mr C, saying his underlings were doing everything necessary and that it was regrettable that parts of the city were in shockingly filthy condition. The blame game was far from played out. But at least Ben-Hur was playing again, resuming on Saturday night, the 22nd of February. While Mr Vincent and Mr Williamson might have been out of line in trying to reopen sooner, they now took the threat of reinfestation seriously. No doubt this was as much for public health as for their bottom line because another closure would be financially ruinous. No food whatsoever was allowed into the theatre. Cast and crew had to take their meal breaks elsewhere. The sale of fruit and nuts and sweets to the audience was also discontinued. Edible items like grease paint had to be locked up when not in use. And at the end of every night, the entire theatre was fumigated top to bottom. On reopening night, Her Majesty's Theatre was packed and the show was warmly received. 
Ben-Hur's resumption led to newspapers running new, enthusiastic reviews. The Sydney Morning Herald said it was testament to the strength of the artistry and the mechanical perfections that the show had resisted the shock of a week-long closure that would have sunk lesser productions. Regional papers again had a bit of a laugh at the city folk's expense. The Southern Mail at Barrel said Sydney siders were, quote, not plague-scared and that there had been quite the riotous rush to see Ben-Hur. The Riverina Times at Hay said that people going to the theatre, quote, seemed to attach little importance to an odd case of the plague. Having learned nothing from previous fate-tempting predictions, Sydney's The Australian Star newspaper said, quote, it is safe to say that Ben-Hur will have a lengthened run. But the plague's run was also still going strong. On the day Ben-Hur resumed, there was a new city hotspot, just one block north of Her Majesty's Theatre. This was the Criterion Hotel on the corner of Pitt and Park Streets. The city's medical officer, Dr Armstrong, had visited this building during the week and found it was infested with rats. What's more, there was a small opening in the basement that meant these vermin could get into the Criterion Theatre next door. Dr Armstrong ordered sanitary repairs, but he didn't order the hotel to be closed. Was that erring on the side of health or of commerce? We don't know. Perhaps he thought it would be an overreaction to shut the place before it was confirmed that any of the rats also in residence were infected with the plague. By Saturday the 22nd of February, it was confirmed. That was because three people who worked or lived at the Criterion Hotel were infected. Dr Armstrong now ordered it and the theatre next door to be closed. But that also came too late for two popular actresses, Sally Booth and Ada Lee, who'd been staying in the hotel. Both were reported to have been attacked by fleas that day and both were soon resident at the Coast Hospital. They'd soon be joined by other people who'd been infected in the city, in Surrey Hills and in Redfern. And just like that merchant had predicted, a man was infected at a produce store at Sussex Street. That store and the adjoining buildings were owned by the government and were under the control of the Harbour Trust. During the week, dying plague rats had been found along that block of Sussex Street. Yet the thoroughfare had been kept open while cleansing operations were undertaken. Another man was now found to also have been infected during this period. As the Daily Telegraph put it, quote, The fact remains that a considerable portion of Sussex Street known to be infested with bubonic plague rats is and has been open to public traffic daily. The government appeared to have had to be goaded into taking action at Sussex Street and had then only taken a half measure that had allowed two more people to become infected. As for the constant refrain that individuals needed to take responsibility for rat destruction, some light was cast on the reality of the situation by a man named Harold M. Davis. Mr. Davis was a Justice of the Peace who lived in Elizabeth Street, Surrey Hills, and he wrote a letter to the Evening News. He said that on the 16th of February, his dog had killed a large rat on his premises. He was sure the rat was plague-stricken. So he wrote to the town clerk saying his place was overrun and had the letter hand-delivered. Could they send a health inspector and a rat catcher? Three days later, he got a reply saying his letter had been received and that he would receive the council's earliest attention. Five more days had passed and still nothing. Mr. Davis concluded his letter, quote, of course, I burnt the rat, but there are lots more cutting about, which the inspector can see, if he ever turns up, which appears doubtful. Both house and outbuildings are literally swarming with rats. No comment is required upon this style of fighting the plague. 
the thing speaks for itself. Mr Davis would be taken to task by the Freeman's Journal newspaper, which made fun of him for not killing the rats himself. While there was some truth to this, it also kind of missed the point. Mr Davis wasn't able to actually do bacteriological examination to determine whether the dead rat had bubonic plague, and the Board of Health needed to know where all such infected rats were. Further, while he might lay bait and kill some rats, it wouldn't do much good if the rats were coming from an adjoining property or from a cracked sewer pipe. Determining such things was also the job of the inspectors. But like so many other people, Mr. Davis was on his own. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The mayor, Dr. Armstrong, and other city officials did a tour of Sydney. They were shocked by what they saw. In Crown Street in Woolloomooloo, the mayor said, one house was so bad you wouldn't use it to house cows but people were paying eight shillings per week, plus taxes, for the privilege of living in this squalor. Dr Armstrong reportedly told the mayor that under the present legislation, it would take two years to clear all of these slums. The worst, those in Woolloomooloo, had already been condemned, but under the law, the demolition would take three more months. Echoing the 1900 mantra, the rats must die, Dr Armstrong renewed calls for vermin extermination by telling reporters, quote, kill the rats and you kill the plague. It was a good slogan, but it also wasn't much more than that. When Dr Armstrong was interviewed by a particularly tenacious Daily Telegraph reporter, it showed that even now authorities were wrapped up in red tape and getting in their own way. Going beyond the simple slogan, the reporter asked Dr. Armstrong what was being done to kill the rats and thus kill the plague. The doctor replied, quote, We are distributing poison free of charge to all people who apply for it and have issued a circular requesting all householders to use it. All right, so was the poison being used to any effective extent? Dr. Armstrong replied, Yes, I think so. We frequently hear from people who tell us they have used the poison and are now troubled by the stench of dead rats. That didn't seem a particularly scientific way of accounting, but moving on, the doctor said that when bodies were examined, they were generally free from plague. But it was through such examination that infection had been found in Sussex Street. Yet that area had only been cleaned rather than quarantined, and the reporter asked, Is anything being done to kill the rats? Dr Armstrong, Not by us. The householders must cooperate in work of that kind. We cannot do it effectually without their help. The reporter pressed, Then, although this area in Sussex Street has been known for some days to be infested with plague rats, so far as you know, no special effort has been made to rid that portion of the city of rats? Dr Armstrong replied, The City Council have done nothing in the area. It is under the control of the Harbour Trust, and they are cleansing and fumigating it. I cannot impress too strongly upon you the fact that householders themselves must kill the rats. Without their assistance, we are powerless. Even 120 years later, the reporter's frustration is evident. Quote, 
but surely if the government were to place a sum of money, say a large sum, at your disposal and give you instructions to kill all the rats in the Darling Harbour district, you could do it, could you not? The doctor replied, no, it could not be done. He said the reason for this was it had just drive them elsewhere. So everyone everywhere needed to stage a general attack. Dr. Armstrong seemed to be saying that killing rats in one area was of no use whatsoever. But then he contradicted himself by agreeing that a special operation in Sussex Street would be useful. But in the meantime, it wasn't being done, so plague rats would continue to wander around that part of the city. But you didn't have to go as far as Sussex Street. The inspection and cleaning around the Criterion Hotel revealed that while businesses appeared superficially clean, almost all of them were defective and unsanitary. There was rubbish beneath floorboards and backyards were squalid. Dead and dying rats abounded. So how bad was this outbreak now? Seemingly to set minds at ease, but inadvertently showing that whataboutism is far from a new concept, Dr. Tidswell offered comparative charts of the first 15 weeks of the previous and present outbreaks. The 1900 plague by this stage had resulted in 155 cases. The 1902 pestilence, just 26. So that seemed like good news. But of course, in 1900, Sydney had been fighting a new and largely misunderstood threat for the very first time. In the two years since, complacency had fostered the conditions for this renewed outbreak. Also, in the 1900 outbreak, at the 15-week mark, Sydney had suffered more than half of the cases it would see. What Dr Tidswell couldn't know was that this time around, the city was less than one-fifth of the way through. On the morning of the 27th of February, the actress Sally Booth died at the Coast Hospital. While she wasn't exactly a household name, the 64-year-old was a well-known comic-supporting player and she'd been popular with Sydney audiences since arriving in April 1900. As such, she merited a lion portrait in the papers. Charles Williams, the man who'd been bitten in Sussex Street while it had been allowed to remain open, died the next day. Another big city block between the GPO and King Street was found to be heavily infested with plague rats and was next to be cleansed. A post office employee was soon attacked and investigations showed the building was in terrible sanitary condition, having barely been maintained since it was built in 1866. The basement, where employees ate their lunches, was heavily infested with rats. Now Dr Armstrong, who'd been touring cleansing sites, casually told an evening news reporter what he did when visiting infected houses. To prevent fleas from getting up inside his trousers and biting his legs, he attached tablets soaked in formalin to his socks. Dr Armstrong said he'd been doing this since the last epidemic. Fleas were repulsed by the formalin and would not pass inside the trouser leg where they could attack his skin. He said these tablets were available at chemists and were also easy to make at home. This advice was reported in the evening news under the headline, A Valuable Hint, No Admittance to Fleas. It seems worth noting that this advice had not, so far as I've found, been publicly offered before. It was simple, and it was possibly life-saving. The other actress who'd been staying at the Criterion Hotel, Ada Lee, aged 41, died the day after Dr Armstrong's handy hint appeared in the press. By the time Ada Lee was being committed to a disinfected grave at the Coast Hospital, the various authorities had finally decided on that combined rat crusade. The attack was set for the night of next Wednesday, the 5th of March. 
All across the city and suburbs, householders and business owners would simultaneously destroy rats in and around their buildings. Dr. Armstrong issued instructions in a circular, which was also printed in the papers. He advised all garbage should be burned or put into a metal bin and covered. If denied food, rats would be more likely to eat the poison. Little boxes of this poison, mixed with meal, were being delivered to households in horse carts. Or you could pick them up at any number of places. Dr. Armstrong's message concluded, Don't forget, next Wednesday is the day. Articles also set out how people could make their own poisons and traps. But the official poison was distributed by carts perambulating through the city on Tuesday and Wednesday. Distributors knocked on doors and offered the baits. Some 30,000 were taken up by Sydney ciders. When darkness fell, the baits were to be laid, pets were to be restrained, and the next morning any uneaten baits had to be collected. The Daily Telegraph said that morning, quote, This is perhaps the most important movement that has yet been projected in connection with the suppression of the present plague outbreak, and its success or failure must rest absolutely with the citizens themselves. It had been achieved by the cooperation of the Premier, the Board of Health, the Sydney Council and Municipal Councils. Seizing on this theme, Sydney's Mayor said every householder who neglected to lay poison was also nullifying the efforts of his neighbours. As the circular said, quote, It is the duty of all to kill rats on their premises. As Sydney prepared to do battle, it was gratifying to learn something was finally being done about the waterways. That week in Darling Harbour, scavenging boats returned with quite the catch. 31 dead dogs, 27 cats, 78 rats, 10 bags of meat, 10 bags of fish, 38 fowls, 2 pigs and 2 sheep. All of these carcasses and all of this offal had been festering in waters that had been repeatedly said to pose no public health risk. It wasn't reported whether operations included Johnston's Bay. On Wednesday night, Sydney ciders laid their poisons and their traps. But one question seemingly hadn't been raised by anyone. Who was going to collect all the dead rats? On Friday, two days after the rat crusade, the Sydney Council had a meeting to discuss the best method to collect the rodent corpses. While they were mulling this question, carts were lined up outside Sydney Town Hall, drivers awaiting instructions. It's worth remembering that over the past 48 hours or so, the city's dead and dying rats had been shedding plague fleas. Inside, the councillors went through their chit-chat. Was it a good idea perhaps for drivers to ring a bell? Maybe they could call out, bring out your dead rats. Sydney's mayor said this would invite ridicule, but it would also be effective. In other words, it was so stupid, it just might work. The council agreed and the motion was passed. So off the carts went bells clanging, drivers shouting, and Sydney-siders laughing as they brought out their dead rats. And that's what the evening news headline said that Friday. Bring out your dead rats. How many dead rats were brought out? The results of the rat crusade were at first anecdotally impressive. For instance, one man reported a dozen dead rats around his house. But then days passed without any official death toll. The Board of Health had previously been precise in its accounting of rats exterminated. The first phase, from November to January, had led to 15,006 being destroyed. But now there appeared to be a caginess about the Crusades' tally. As the Australian Star reported nearly a week later, quote, Up to the present, the Health Department has received no details as to how many rats were killed during the Crusade last Wednesday night. 
it is thought that the slaughter was not as great as had been expected. It is hoped that another big effort to exterminate the remaining rodents will be made on Wednesday night next. With all of this going on, was now really the time to be discussing the causes of the rat situation? A letter writer to the Evening News certainly thought so. He reminded readers that it had been on the 2nd of November 1898 that the eminent Dr John Creed, member of the Legislative Assembly, had beseeched the council to take action to prevent infected rats coming off ships and gaining a foothold in Sydney. Dr Creed had been poo-pooed then. Just over a year later, he'd been proved right. Now the city was suffering the sequel. As the Evening News correspondent put it, quote, but how futile and childish seems the action of the council to stamp out rat life by poison in a city undermined by these creatures in countless thousands. What is the capture of 10,000 rats or 50,000 in a sphere where they can be numbered in so many millions? Quite ahead of his time, this letter writer suggested that the council follow the example of German scientists who, about 10 years ago, had come up with the bacteria to actually infect and kill rats. Conspiratorially minded, the letter writer suggested that such experiments were already being carried out in Sydney in secret. He was giving the various authorities far too much credit. On the 8th of March 1902, Dr Ashburton Thompson was back at work after his long absence due to illness. He saw Premier C and said he was happy with what he'd seen in terms of arresting the plague. But the way the Daily Telegraph phrased its article hinted that Dr. Ashburton Thompson thought previous efforts had been lacking. Quote, now that the Board of Health and the City Council were working so harmoniously together, the doctor hoped that the combined efforts of the authorities would result in the plague being speedily stamped out. The very first episode of Forgotten Australia was about sister Annie Egan, who, in late 1918, gave her life caring for Spanish flu patients at the quarantine station. So it seems only fitting to acknowledge John Ponsonby, aged 40, who was employed by the city council as a rat catcher. The Board of Health was notified he had the plague the same day that he died of it, the 13th of March. Another man, William Bott, aged 29, who worked in cleansing operations, would also quickly contract the disease and die from it. Despite Dr Ashburton Thompson's hopes, there were cases everywhere. Potts Point, Redfern, Bondi Junction, Coggera, Surrey Hills, Marrickville, Annandale, Paddington, several in the city, and that was just the first week of March. By the 13th of that month, Ben-Hur scene shifter Albert Twist had been released from hospital. It was only now that newspapers acknowledged that he'd worked at Her Majesty's Theatre. He'd been one of the lucky two out of three who would survive the plague. To that date, there'd been 51 cases and 17 deaths. Whether Albert Twist went back to work at Ben-Hur isn't known. If he did, he wasn't going to be on the payroll much longer, even though the show was going from strength to strength. The Sydney sportsman said, quote, Ben-Hur is in for a long innings and should be seen by every soul in the state who can afford the outlay and enjoy good acting and a remarkable, a memorable spectacle. Truth reported that J.C. Williamson was confident that Ben-Hur would have a great Easter season at the end of the month and then run well into April. At 11pm on Saturday the 22nd of March, Ben-Hur's chorus waved their palms on the slopes of Mount Olivet and sang the anthem, Jesus of Nazareth. An hour later, it really was Palm Sunday. Hot off the presses, that morning's issue of Truth newspaper outdid previous boosterism with this, quote, 
A first-class house and a first-rate performance last night concluded a successful fifth week of Ben-Hur at Her Majesty's. With all storms over and all dangers past, Mr Williamson may, without the sin of vanity, plume himself on the correctness of his judgment in connection with this great spectacular drama. Some kind critics gave Ben-Hur a fortnight's life, yet instead of playing itself out, Ben-Hur is now in its sixth week, going stronger and better than ever. How big is a spark from a faulty electrical appliance? How big is an errant ember from a carelessly discarded cigarette? An ordinary stage production wouldn't have had all the electrical apparatus under the stage that Ben-Hur's chariot scene required. And any production put on in ordinary times wouldn't have required a fumigation crew to be in the premises all night. By the time Sydney Siders were reading the words in truth, Ben-Hur is now in its sixth week, going stronger and better than ever, the show wasn't in its sixth week. A tiny spark, a tiny ember, a tiny flame. Whatever it was, it was bigger than Ben-Hur. Just like London in 1665-1666, Her Majesty's Theatre had first suffered the Black Death. Then it had burned. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part two of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Plague Returns. This episode was made with use of digital newspapers found at the National Library of Australia's Fantastic Trove database, and with reference to the original New South Wales Medical Register of Plague Cases. Further personal information about Graham McIntyre was found in records at ancestry.com.au. Part three of The Plague Returns will be released very soon. For as little as $3 a month, you can help me research, write and produce Forgotten Australia. And as a thank you, supporters get early access to episodes, show shoutouts, bonus episodes and other goodies. For more information, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia and this link is also in the show notes. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.